And the reason why people are so intense about being trauma-informed is because we oftentimes are looking at kids with behavioral problems or like that sort of, um, we label like the problem kids in school and we yeah. are forgetting the fact that many kids who are experiencing or um, showcasing behavioral problems have trauma, right? And so that's what it means to be trauma-informed to really understand, okay, this kid is not maybe acting out because he, you know, they love to um, diagnose kids with conduct disorder. Like he, yeah. he just won't listen, right? But a lot of times, it's because there's trauma there. Hey, welcome back to Normalize the Conversation. Today, I'm here with Melissa Fulgeri, therapist and consultant living and working in New York City. Melissa, thank you so much for joining me today. I am so excited for this conversation. How are you really? That is such an interesting question, especially um, during these times. First of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm good. You know, I think it's a really weird time right now in that a lot of us are navigating a lot of uncertainty. So, I mean, this past year and a half has been sort of like a lesson in letting go. And so um, I'm just trying to take it one day at a time, basically, but I'm, I'm good overall. Thanks. How are you? I am good. I, um, well, first of all, exactly. Thank you for being so honest and open with your answer because we're all navigating this. And I think a lot of us feel alone. Like there's so much uncertainty. There's so much going on and then things are getting better. Things are getting worse and it's just overwhelming. And it's really reassuring to know that at least we're all in this together. We may not all understand each other, what each other's going through in each other's situations, but we're all going through something together in this new normal, in this new situation. Totally. I saw this, um, this thing that I loved that was a quote that said, we're not all in the same boat, but we're all in the same storm, which I think is very, very true. I absolutely love that quote. We, good, right? It is. And we tend to feel like we're all in our own bubbles, in our own worlds, and we're all going through something by ourselves. And even though we're going through different situations, like you said, we're in different boats, we're all in our boats to get our own boats together. Totally. Yeah. So what inspired you to become a therapist? Um, you know, it was kind of an interesting road in that I um, was a kid that grew up and was super depressed. Um, I, I probably you know, I, it wasn't diagnosed for a while, but I, I really struggled with depression pretty early on, um, in my adolescence, like around eight or nine. And so it was a really lonely and and scary time for me as a kid. And so if I'm honest, that's probably the first thing that got me really interested in my own feelings, my own experience and environment. And, you know, I, um, you know, thankfully was able to sort of learn how to manage that and get new tools, but it, it made me sort of fascinated in the way that not only my mind worked, but that other people's minds worked and really seeing the power of both understanding your mental health and taking control of your mental health 
was a life changer for me. And so I think if I, if I really drill down to what, you know, has brought me here today, I think it's probably that very early journey of, of just feeling sad and, and feeling alone. First of all, a lot of people who are struggling and feel depressed, especially as a child, we grow up to feel so overwhelmed that we don't know how to learn to take care of ourselves. And for you to come out of that and feel so empowered to want to help other people who are going through that is absolutely beautiful. So thank you for the work you're doing because we need that. We need those pain to purpose stories because when you go through it, you understand and you can help people in a beautiful, different way of connection. Yeah. I mean, you know, I grew up in a, in a time, I mean, it, it, you know, it gets better, I think with every generation, but I grew up in a time where self-care was not a phrase we threw around a lot. Mental health was not even sort of like part of our, our cultural language. And so it was really, it was really confusing for me. And I, and I think, you know, the more I sort of learned about what mental health was, the the more empowered I felt to be able to take control of it. But, you know, starting off, not really seeing mental health as a thing that we all have, that we all struggle with. I think that was part of the, the issue. I think that the opening the conversation nowadays has really changed the way that we're approaching mental health and allowing yeah. people to get a lot more help. And people who grew up in a time where mental health wasn't spoken about, where self-care wasn't spoken about, they often don't know how to overcome these depressive thoughts and suicidal mm -hmm. thoughts because they weren't taught it. And that conversation isn't necessarily existing in their age group. It's now existing more among the Gen Z. So what advice could you offer people who are experiencing suicidal ideation, who are experiencing symptoms of depression or anxiety? and don't know how to take charge and to understand their emotions, understand what they're going through, what advice could you offer them? Yeah, so I, I think it's kind of, that's, it's a really good question, but it's a complicated question. And so it has a complicated answer, right? So, you know, when I had experience with suicidal feelings, you know, very early on in my life around ages eight or nine, um, it you know, when you don't have that sort of mental health literacy, you think that there's something wrong with you. And so having the language of depression was a real, um, it was a lifesaver for me to be able to figure out what I was feeling and then be able to figure out what to call it, right? Like there's this thing called the struggle switch that's talked a lot about in um, acceptance and commitment therapy. And oftentimes we're not necessarily, um, it, it's, it's not our feelings that make it difficult. It's our feelings about our feelings, right? So when I was depressed, it was like, I shouldn't be depressed. I'm being too sensitive. I should just, you know, you know, I grew up in a very, um, in a very privileged way. So I had all the things, right? Um, and so there was a lot of guilt that sort of came with that sadness, and I think if I had known earlier, oh, no, 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 that's just depression. I think, I think it would have been super helpful. So that's, so that's sort of like the first thing I'll say, but my advice to someone would be, yeah, start to find the language of what it is that you're feeling because knowledge is power and that can really set you 
free. Um, but then I would also say, you know, find your purpose, right? Like I said, um, I grew up in a privileged background, meaning that I had sort of like this buffet of options to me in terms of what I really wanted to pour my heart and soul into. And so I was lucky enough to find something like theater. Theater was huge for me. It sort of saved my life in a lot of ways because I could not only channel the feelings that I was feeling through a character, but I also had this sense of camaraderie with like-minded people that were crazy and weird and silly and smart. And so, you know, finding that purpose was huge. But what I'll say, you know, so many of the kids that I've worked with in my career, they, they come from these deserts of opportunity, basically, right? So they don't have a kick-ass theater program or they don't have an incredible sports you know, they don't have sports options, right? So it's, it's not just about um, what we do to, to make ourselves feel better. It's also about what opportunities are offered to us, right? And so I was lucky enough to grow up in an environment that had an immense amount of places for me to really find myself. I really admire how you brought up having these opportunities and feeling guilty for having these feelings because it's hard when you have so much to be grateful for around you and you feel so lucky you feel bad for feeling upset you feel bad and it makes you feel guilty like how can I feel this way when I have so much and others have so little and there's it can exist where you are super grateful for what you have and acknowledge how lucky you are and how other people don't have that and feel empathy for them, but also feel empathy for yourself and validate your own feelings because everything is situational and everything is from your own perspective and what you're going through can feel a lot to carry. And it doesn't matter if you have all the opportunities or if you don't. And that's something that I personally struggled with was I've been so lucky in my life to have parents who can provide me so many opportunities and were able to provide me support so I could start a nonprofit while I was in college and continue to get degrees where a lot of people can't afford to get one degree. I'm working on my third. So I felt so guilty. I ended up in a psych ward because I didn't know how to express my feelings. I didn't know that it was okay for me to feel this way and that I can open up about it. And I think that's something that's so relatable. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I tell clients a lot that our, your gratitude practice is not a stick with which to beat yourself with, right? I, I hear people, you know, they, they aren't using gratitude in the way that it's really meant to be used. Gratitude needs to be held with an acknowledgement of your struggles, right? Like we, we need to be able to hold both of those things. You can be immensely grateful for what you have and also acknowledge the struggles that you have at the same time. There's, there's room enough for both. Exactly. And oftentimes we feel like there's only one. Mm-hmm. But in the past, you worked a lot with family intervention and therapy. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about your work and things that you learned while working in that field. Totally. So my first job out of grad school was um, in the child welfare system, which is so funny because when I was in grad school, I was like, I will work anywhere but the child welfare system because I had heard such horror stories. Um, 
but I ended up getting hired by this really reputable agency in New York City. And I thought, you know, why not? I think, to be honest, it was the only job offer I got during graduation. So I didn't have much of a choice anyway. But um, so my role was, to, and I, I had a lot of different roles over the next eight years. But the way it started was that I was a family therapist for families that had been touched by the child welfare system because of a report of abuse or neglect. And so what I would do is I would go into the homes of these families all over Brooklyn um, with my little backpack and my little laptop um, doing family therapy in the homes of people who were basically told either your children are going to be removed or you could do this family therapy with this person, right? That was really like the choice that they were faced with. Um, and so over the past eight years, I was a therapist, but then I eventually became a supervisor of that team and then a director of that team and then a consultant of the therapy model that I was doing. So I was really lucky in that I got to see that family intervention at every single um, viewpoint. That is absolutely amazing that you were able to continue to move up through that and get that knowledge and experience because it's something that most of us don't see. And when Mm -hmm. we were talking earlier about opportunities and how a lot of people don't have those opportunities, I feel that a lot of missed opportunities come from children being abused and neglected and feeling like they're not good enough. So what are some ways that you feel that abuse and neglect can really affect a child and their mental health? I mean, it's trauma, right? So trauma can look so differently across each person and also depending on, you know, one of the great things about um, my work is that you really start to view, you know, people within their environment, right? That's sort of like what they tell you in social work school anyway, but Um, you know, a kid that is experiencing abuse and neglect in a very, you know, privileged household, it looks a little bit different, and it's going to present a little bit differently than a kid who, you know, has food insecurity, um, you know, or is, you know, struggling with poor supervision or, or whatever the case may be, right? So, it, it can impact your sense of self, it can impact your self-esteem, it can impact your ability to regulate your emotions. Um, you know, it, it's, it's really pervasive. So when a child is going through abuse or neglect or some kind of trauma, what are some warning signs for maybe the child or family members or even the parents to recognize so that they can have some kind of support and awareness? So, um, you know, a lot of times, you know, there's this big thing in in the mental health field now about trauma-informed. And the reason why people are so intense about being trauma-informed is because we oftentimes are looking at kids with behavioral problems or like that sort of, um, we label like the problem kids in school and we are forgetting the fact that many kids who are experiencing or um, showcasing behavioral problems have trauma, right? And so that's what it means to be trauma-informed to really understand, okay, this kid is not maybe acting out because he, you know, they love to um, diagnose kids with conduct disorder. Like he, he just won't listen 
right? But a lot of times it's because there's trauma there. Um, and that I think gets missed. And so, you know, this, the signs again are different, but it can come out as difficulty concentrating. It can come out as anger or acting out in school. It can come out as um, highly sexualized behaviors, right? When I, I've worked with a lot of kids who experience sexual abuse in their families and that often can look like highly sexualized behaviors or, um, you know, replaying what you learned in that sexual abuse experience. So it, it really totally depends on the situation. I really love how you brought up how complex it is and how it's different for everyone, because I think a lot of times when it comes to trauma, when it comes to mental health, when it comes to just an overall understanding of trauma, we put everyone into a box. And if Mm -hmm. you don't fit inside this box, then you don't fit what you're going through isn't real. It's not valid. It's in your head. And it's not, it's different for every single person. And it's okay that it's different. And it doesn't mean that something's wrong with you because you've gone through something. Trauma affects you. And it's about learning how to move through the trauma. And we don't teach that to kids in school. We don't have a parenting course that teaches parents that you don't learn it unless you develop some kind of self-awareness or go into counseling or maybe social media, finding these conversations. So it can be really, really difficult. And like you said, a lot of kids are misdiagnosed with conduct disorder, even ADHD, because a lot of times we take their trauma on what's going on and we just ignore it. We push it to the side and we don't look at the full picture. We just say, how can we fix, exactly. And we try to fix that problem instead of fixing the situation as a whole. Exactly. And so that's why, you know, family intervention is so incredible because we don't remove kids from their environment. We treat the environment itself. And that's why it, you know, there's such good research to back it up. That's why, you know, in New York City alone, right, when we started to really put our dollars into family intervention, as opposed to removing kids and sort of like plopping them somewhere upstate or putting them in a a scared straight program that we used to see on like Maury and Jerry Springer, you know, what you started to realize is that it works, you know, when you start to treat kids in the context of their home, treat the abuse that is happening, right, give parents other tools, give parents what they need to, you know, in terms of vocational training, right? If they're stressed out and they're taking that stress out on the kid, it's about figuring out for the parent, what do you need to be able to get you to have a different experience to parent in a different way? Um, That's, that's really what makes the difference. Exactly. And like you said, I think a lot of people feel that if a child is being abused or neglected or going through some kind of trauma, we should immediately remove them from the home. But rehabilitation is possible. A lot of times, like you said, stress can cause it to be misplaced. Things can be displaced. And sometimes you don't even realize it. You don't realize you're taking it out on your child. You don't realize it that you're taking it out on a spouse or another family member because you don't completely realize what you're going through. We, a lot of times Absolutely. we're not self-aware. Absolutely. Or by the way, general generational trauma is a part of this too, right? If you were, if you were abused or if you were never 
taught how to parent, right? It, how are you supposed to figure out that when you had no model for that? Exactly. And like I said earlier, there is no course on this. So Mm -hmm. we don't know until we know, we don't know what we don't know. So Mm -hmm. sometimes we just don't realize it. And family intervention can be the perfect opportunity to learn more and to learn how to address it, but also how to cope with it. Because if we had these coping skills, we're set up better. We're in a better situation and a better, we have more steps forward. We can learn, we can cope, we can grow, but without it, you don't know how to grow. You don't know how to overcome it because no one has taught you. But so I'm really interested in learning more about how when a child might be abused or neglected or family intervention services are called, what is that protocol look like? Sure. So, you know, there's, there's a spectrum of risk, right? Like I think, um, you know, the whole idea behind prevention is that oftentimes removing a kid from their home, even if the abuse and neglect is happening in the home itself, the actual removal tends to be more traumatic than the actual abuse or neglect, right? So, you know, what sort of the ideology behind family work is that if you can do really good assessments, right, constant safety and risk assessments to make sure that, okay, and, you know, back to sort of like this idea behind viewing people and viewing situations through a series of risk factors and protective factors, right? Social workers are trained to always be understanding, okay, do the risks outweigh the protective factors? And if, if so, right, what intervention do I use based on what I'm looking at with my eyeballs, right? So a kid that is two years old that's being abused is a different situation than a kid that is 16, right? A 16-year-old can walk away. They can go spend the night at their friend's house, right? A two-year-old, that's a, it's a totally different thing. And so sort of when you look at it through the child welfare system, those assessments are currently constantly being made. But what we've found with family intervention is that it is so powerful that you you can stabilize many, many, um, the, a wide spectrum of risk through, through both that assessment piece, how risky is this, and the intervention piece, which is really just about understanding the pattern of behavior, right? So, you know, we look at things through the lens of what is the function of a behavior, right? It's not necessarily that a behavior is good or bad, though, you know, of course, abuse, neglect, these are unequivocally bad, but they also, there's, there's a function to them, right? So like I said before, stress can lead to, you know, a dysregulation and then lead to you know, hitting your kid, right? And so the, just to simplify it, an intervention might be, okay, why is this mom stressed? How can we help target her stress so that not only she's, we're putting her in a position to be less stressed, but also we're giving her some maybe parenting tools so that when she is stressed, she has, back to sort of language, she has different things to go to so that she doesn't feel like, oh my God, my only tool in my toolbox is to hit, 
right? The same yeah. thing, whereas if we're working with a 16-year-old, we're giving him tools to be able to, I mean, parents all the time say like, I just don't think he is listening to me, right? We will teach active listening for the kid to be able to say something as simple as mom, I hear you so that she doesn't have to say it 500 times and each time get angrier and angrier and angrier. So it's, it's all through a pattern. I think it's really interesting how you brought up the difference between a two-year-old who can't leave and a 16-year-old who can, because Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times, like I said earlier, we put it into a box and every situation is unique and Mm -hmm. everyone has different options. Some people don't have options, but everyone has a situation that can be treated in a different way. And if we don't look at the full situation, we can't provide the proper support. Mm-hmm. But you also mentioned how taking a child out of the household can be really traumatic and even more traumatic than helping them. But is there ever an, a point where another family member must take on a responsibility of temporarily or permanently caring for a child? Totally. Yeah, there's there's things called respite services, right? There are a lot of times where if that parent could just get a break for 48 hours, um, you know, they would be able to sort of get replenished and then come back to the table, right? That's the same thing with risk and protective factors, right? Like abuse looks differently when when you have more privilege because you know if you're a two-parent household, you can be able to say, I'm I'm I've had it up to here, you know, and ask your partner to take your kid, right? When it's a um a single parent household, you can't do that as much, right? So um Absolutely. What we're, what you really try and do with family intervention is think about what are the risk factors, what are the protective factors and what, what other protective factors like respite, like, um, you know, having, you know, helping a mom increase her, her social network so that she can vent to a girlfriend, right? Like there are these small little adjustments that when you start to add to the list of protective factors, that's really the stuff that makes the difference. Exactly. And I think a lot of times we, or people who have to maybe give up their child for 48 hours, like you said, to get that break, feel really guilty and feel like I can't be a parent. I'm not good enough at being a parent. My kid is better off without me. And how in therapy and through preventative services, can you help kids or help the parents really make peace that that was the best decision at the time because they need that break and it's not wrong of them to take that break. Yeah. Well, it's kind of what we were saying earlier with the struggle switch, right. Of depression. It's like, you know, it's working on just acknowledging that you need what you need. Right. And so if you grew up being told that a mother is supposed to look like these 10 things and you're not doing those 10 things, or you're doing those things in a slightly different way, there's a lot of shame, there's a lot of guilt. There's a, I mean, like mom shaming is a, is a term for a reason, because it happens all the time. Right. And so part of the work is about sort of shedding how you thought it was going to look, you know, um, and acknowledging what you need. Right. Now, that being said, there's a lot of systemic issues that make giving parents what they need um, a problem, right? Like the child welfare system in a lot of ways is super oppressive, especially to low income 
people of color, right? And so it's not necessarily just targeting the person itself, but it's also targeting the systems at play that make it oppressive and make it more difficult, right? Abuse and neglect happens across the board in all families, but there is a way, way intense overrepresentation of people of color in the child welfare system in America, in Canada, in Australia, right? There's, these are huge issues. And so it's not necessarily just about, okay, mom, what do you need? It's also about an acknowledgement that we're only targeting a subset of people in this country um, and calling it a problem. That is such an important point because we don't tend to look at the systematic failures that are happening and how people are being oppressed. We kind of write it off. Mm -hmm. We don't offer them the support and tools. And one of the biggest problems that we don't realize is the infrastructure support and how when you're living in a more low-income area, you don't have the same access to internet to be able to get places. There's not always therapy or counseling in your local area. You might have to drive a long way to get there. Not everything is as easily accessible. And that plays a major role on top mm-hmm. of the stress of, can I, am I going to be able to afford to eat tonight? Can I afford to feed my child tonight? Do I have to not eat so my child can eat? That's a yeah. lot of pressure and stress and it takes a toll on people. And we're so ready to be judgmental. And we're so ready, like you said, to mom shame that we don't give them the opportunity to learn how to cope with that and to help them. We're kind of just pushing them further and further down instead of offering the support that they need. Right. And it's, it's a lack of acknowledgement that it's not, it's not their fault, right? It's this, there's a system at place that is, is making all these barriers be a part of the equation that, that continues, you know, like a vicious cycle as to that sort of disenfranchisement. Exactly. And a bit earlier, we talked about how there may be a small time where a family member might take on responsibility for a little bit, or where um, a family member might realize that a child is being abused or neglected. Um, But a lot of times I feel that people think, well, it's not my business. I can't ask, I can't talk about it. So Should they ask? Should they talk about it with the adult, with the child? Are there statements they should use, not use? Could you share some insight on that? Sure. Um, You know, it's kind of similar to suicide prevention, right? Like it's the same thing where just asking someone, are you suicidal, doesn't put it into someone's head, right? So it's the sort of same thing with abuse and neglect, right? If you ask, are you okay? Are, you know, do you need help? That doesn't, there's very little, um, there's very little consequence to that, right? What I would say is, you know, I'm a mandated reporter, right? So like I have a different legal duty that if I see something, I have to do something as sort of like mandated by the state of New York. But um, for others, you know, what I would say is, you have to tread carefully because it is such a um, complicated situation. But I think if if you if you um, go w- with a place of genuine care and respect, I think you're going to get respect back. 
right? And so um, I don't think there's any sort of like best practices in terms of what exactly you should say or you should do. I think the fact that you, um, the commitment that you make to yourself to say something is good enough. That is a really interesting perspective because we don't look at it that way, that it's okay to ask and to show that you are aware and you are concerned because that child may feel unsafe and need someone to talk to, might need some comfort and they might feel alone and like no one can see it. So is it in my head or is it real? And then a lot of family members and adults and parents may even feel am I doing something wrong? They don't realize it. They don't know for sure. And having someone kind of confront them with a question shows that maybe it's not in my head. Maybe it is real. And there are things I can do. There's support I can get. And sometimes when you're in the middle of the situation, you don't realize that there are resources available because you're so overwhelmed and you're in your head and someone else may be able to help you find some resources, may be able to find you um, local counseling services, affordable counseling services, um, even some coping mechanisms, a list of coping mechanisms, workbooks that you can do to help you cope with your emotions. There's so much available, but when we're in the situation, we often don't realize it. Yeah, and I think you never want to sort of, uh, I talk about this a lot with therapists that I've supervised, you never want to put your head on the pillow at night thinking, should I have done something, right? Like it's, if that's not a good place for you to be in the helping profession, you always want to have done, you know, trusting your instincts is such a big part of this work. And so there's nothing wrong with asking the question, but you also have to keep in mind that kids are amazingly protective, right? Like even when kids are experiencing a tough time at home, they often are always going to go to protect their parents, which is such a beautiful thing in so many ways. And so it's also about knowing that like, if you're not equipped to deal with it, there is someone nearby that is right. So if you, you know, if you feel like you've opened up a can of worms with a kid and you don't feel like you have the strategy and the training to be able to deal with it, there are people around you that can. And and so you starting the conversation, there's nothing wrong with sort of like tapping out and saying, this is outside of my scope. I can't do this, but you know, here's someone else who can help. That is so incredibly important that it's okay to realize I can't do it. And we often feel so guilty and like we have to, but if we're trying to do something that we don't know how to do and aren't equipped with the tools and resources, we may not be helpful. We may even be detrimental in some ways. Absolutely. So recognizing that this isn't, this is out of my wheelhouse. This isn't what I can do and offer, but I can offer my help and time and finding resources and finding someone who can help you. And that is so incredibly important that even if you're the one who's helping, you can still ask for help. 100%. And you should, no one should know everything. You know, like that's, I think, such a big part of the social work profession is also like being able to be humble and knowing what you don't know and owning that is I think just as important as owning what you do know. Exactly. And I just feel that a lot of times we get overwhelmed by not knowing we get overwhelmed by why don't we know? And we get a lot of guilt with that. 
And then mm-hmm. we feel like we have to step in and we step in too far. We kind of mm-hmm. over push ourselves into the situation and because we want to help so badly and we don't know how. So now we're getting attached and personal to it. So do you have any advice for someone who's on the outside looking in and wants to be supportive, doesn't know how, but now feels that maybe I've crossed the boundaries a little bit by trying to force myself into a situation I'm not ready to handle and I'm not equipped to handle so that they can be able to step back or maybe some warning signs that they should step back and ask someone else for help? Um, I think it takes self-awareness, right? I think it takes the awareness to be able to say, um, how am I doing? How am I feeling about this? Am I just, you know, sometimes when we're faced with a risky situation, our adrenaline starts pumping and then we're sort of like flying by the seat of our pants and, you know, just sort of doing whatever feels, you know, right in the moment. And I think it's, it's really important to sort of pause and take stock and ask yourself, what am I doing? How am I doing? How am I doing it? And what are the implications for what I'm doing in this moment? Right? Because I agree with you. I think it's a very, especially for women, I think it's a really uncomfortable place to admit you're not knowing because again, you know, if we want to talk about systems again, you know, in order for women to sort of like meet, you know, a male counterpart, we sort of have to act like we know what we're doing and fake it till we make it. And like, there's, um, there's a real sort of, I think, difficulty there in, in, uh, I think it's honestly a bravery to be able to say, I don't know how to do this and, and have that be okay. So I think it's really just about self-awareness. It's about, um, you know, structurally, I think it's about your supervisor, your boss, whoever it is creating a safe enough space to be able to not know, because I think there's a lot of environments where that's not okay. And so people will fake it. They will say like, yeah, no, I got it. I, I totally, you know, I'm with it. And then sort of like, go and, and Google something. Right. So I think that there's a lot of things at play. That is so true. The um, phrase fake it till you make it is thrown around so regularly now that everyone feels like, okay, I don't know what I'm doing, but I have to pretend like I know what I'm doing. And that can be dangerous in certain situations. And it's really important, like you said, to be self-aware, ask yourself these questions, constantly check in with yourself because sometimes we're like I said, we don't know what we don't know. So Mm -hmm. if we don't realize that we are not self-aware and that we're in a situation that's too much for us. If we don't ask ourselves these questions regularly and check in, we're never going to know. Yeah. And by the way, we're going to lose credibility too, because when we sort of are asserting ourselves as being this knowing person around some of these things, it, it catches up with you. Right. And then there are implications for that too, where someone says, oh, she, she actually doesn't know. And then trust breaks down. Right. So it's, you know, it, it, um, it catches up with you. It really does. And we said, checking in with yourself and asking these questions are so important. Melissa, thank you so much for joining me today. You have just been this burst of insight that we all really need. Thank you. Thank you. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. It was so fun. 